This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi everyone, it's Doc with a special announcement. We are going to take a cruise through some of our most popular episodes from prior seasons to get everyone fired up. Now our new content will continue to drop on Saturdays each week, but we will also be re-releasing these great episodes on Monday for your morning commute. I know you've all heard about Classic Rock. Well, we're going to call these episodes Classic Doc. Sit back, settle in, and enjoy the ride. Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freakin' Mirpod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Miss these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. Human beings have spent the vast majority of their existence in the wild. Towns and cities are a relatively recent concept, and although they feel secure, we don't belong there. They are not our natural surroundings. You will realize quickly that the outdoors is where we were nurtured, spent our infancy, 
and were raised. It is embedded in us. Fozzie. I'm going to start this week's episode with a passage from Fozzie's book, The Last Englishman, which recounts his 2010 thru-hike of the Pacific Crest Trail. We had 12 miles to the finish, and then 8 miles further to Manning Park in Canada. Once we'd surmounted the imminent Devil's Stairway, it was downhill to the border. The problem was one section called Lakeview. The hikers at Hart's Pass had warned of a quarter-mile-long west-facing slope renowned for accumulating snow. It was the last hurdle. As I rounded a corner, I realized they were right. A steep hill plunged menacingly. The trail was non-existent, and we didn't have ice axes or crampons. The only saving grace was the soft snow, offering grip. If it had been frozen, we'd have had the danger of an angled traverse, like walking on a slanting mirror. We took slow, deliberate steps across, the snow reaching our thighs and cautiously cautiously glanced at the 1,500-foot drop to the rocks below. The wind intensified. Even the clouds lowered as if a higher power were trying every mean trick to make us quit at the last stretch. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Mearpod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. All right, thank you for tuning in this week. If any of you have been following our social media, you'll know that this is a special episode. Joining us today is self-proclaimed drumomaniac and best-selling author Keith Foskett, who goes by the trail name of Fozzie. Fozzie has logged upwards of 12,000 miles of trail time during his three hikes of the El Camino de Santiago in Spain, his through hikes of the Pacific Crest Trail and Appalachian Trails, and several assorted national trails in his native United Kingdom. He has written six books, and most of them are available in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audiobook. And two of those books are shortlisted for the Outdoor Book of the Year by the Great Outdoors magazine. His latest book, High and Low, shares his experiences on a 600-mile hike across Scotland and is coming to terms with depression. Fozzie, welcome to the John Freakin' Mearpod. Doc, it's great to be here. Fantastic. Now, I know, uh, I know you've listened to the pod. I hope you've listened to the pod. And we've got a, a section that comes up at the end. And it's called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And it just kind of, it's not something we plan for. It just comes up in natural conversation during the episode. Uh, something at the end of the episode where we can kind of let our, our listeners know, hey, here's a pro tip to consider when you're planning or, or making your next hike. So uh, just be on the lookout for what that might be as we, we have our conversation today. Sure, no problem. I think I've got a couple of things I can, uh, I can pass on. No problem. Fantastic. So I, I really, I, I want to share with our listeners and I want to share with you how this whole thing came to be, because I don't think I've told you this yet, but um, I was reading your book, Last Englishman, it was up on my nightstand. And truthfully, at that point, I'm not sure if somebody would have asked me who, who is Keith Foskett, I would, I would, I would not have known just because I was really I enjoying the I book. Have done either. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was really enjoying the book, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't dialed into, to the author's name. And uh, I happened to be on Twitter one day and a Twitter suggested a suggested follower 
uh, came up or said, you know, it suggested you should follow somebody and it said, Keith Foskett. I'm like, it happened to come up right as I was standing next to my, to my nightstand. And I looked down and there's your name on the book. There's your name on my, on my phone. I'm like, wow, I'm going to follow him. This is a great book. I want to, I want to see what he has to say on, on Twitter and social media. And then immediately after following you, I just on a lark, just reached out to you uh, with a direct message asking if you'd be willing to, to uh, letting you know that I was enjoying your book, but also asking if you'd be willing to uh, come on the podcast and lickety split, you got right back to me. It was, it was uh, like kismet. It was, it was amazing. That kind of makes you wonder if uh, we keep hearing about this um, stuff about, you know, you're having a conversation with one of your best friends about, I really should buy a new tie or whatever. And all of a sudden your Facebook feed comes up with adverts for new ties. Kind of makes you wonder if you video, you left your video camera on your, on your laptop or something and it saw you reading one of my books. <laughs> That, that gets to one of the points um, I was going to talk about a little bit later, but at the end of your book, The Last Englishman, one of the questions we always ask on the podcast of our, our guests is, you know, why do we do this? Why do we go out there and endure this hardship? And you've got a great list at the end of The Last Englishman. Um, it says the original, one of your chapters is, you know, the original question, why? And we'll go through some of those answers, but it just reminded me of one of those that I saw on there was that you could... Uh, delve deep into conspiracy theories. I love a good conspiracy theory. Um, I think I'm probably a little bit on the gullible, gullible side. It was well, certainly in respect of, uh, of conspiracy theory. So you've only got to start talking about UFOs or ghosts or, uh, I don't know, uh, Facebook putting tie adverts up on your feed. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I'm a sucker for a good, uh, for a good conspiracy theory. Same here. That's a whole nother episode we'll have to do. It is. All right. So let's get to the big question of the day. Do you listen to the, to the John freaking your pod? I do. I've listened to a couple, I must admit, and being brutally honest, um, I don't listen to a, an awful amount of podcasts. One, I'm usually too busy, but B, uh, when I do manage to listen to them, it's normally in the car. And um, I don't know what the situation is over in the States at the moment, but in the UK, at least for the last couple of months, we're only allowed to drive because of the coronavirus thing for uh, necessity, which is basically shopping, I think sort of seeing people who need help, that sort of thing. So my driving time has, has gone down as well. But yeah, I've listened to a, to a couple of them. They're uh, entertaining. <laughs> All right. Yeah, same, same thing over here. It's really cut into our drive time. That's where I have uh, usually kept up with most of the podcasts I listen to. So I'm in the same situation. I, I've got a lot to catch up on. Strange times, very strange times. Um, a little bit upsetting to see all those people uh, who've gone out to, I mean, obviously the big trail to the big trails in the States, the AT and the, the PCT this year to have their, their hopes dashed and, I think even now, you know, you see, you see comments up on social media, people still hoping to get a through hike in this year, whether that'll happen or not, I don't know. I mean, June is obviously, is not too late for the, for the southbounders. Um, I not, the last I read about the, the trails over in the States, I think they're open, but I'm not sure if they're open for through hikes or not. Um, but it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, it, Certainly from my point of view, you spend, I think from when I first realized I wanted to do the, the Pacific Crest Trail to when I actually got out there and did it, it was a space of, I think, four years. 
um, and even six months is, is a long wait because it's I guess it's, it's the dream of a lifetime doing these these hikes and to, to have it all build up and the excitement and the momentum to be dashed at the last minute must be you know you kind of feel for all the people out there doing these hikes or not doing these hikes this year let's hope they can get a late one in and, and let's hope the situation improves for next year at least yeah you hit it right on the head uh, the word i was going to use was heartbreaking people yeah. have planned for for months and years to to make this happen and it's it's a you know it's a life goal to be able to complete something like this and then to have it just kind of snatched out from under you at the last second, it's, just, uh, it's brutal. Heartbreaking is a word, yeah. Yep. All right. Hey, let's, uh, let's go back a few years. Let's, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to hear about your, your upbringing, you know, what your childhood was like and, and kind, of, uh, kind of lead that into how did you get involved with the long distance hiking? Um, as a kid, I mean, I had, a, I had a fantastic upbringing. Um, I didn't have a privileged upbringing. I had, I guess, kind of a normal upbringing in inverted commas. Um, and I think that's where, not necessarily the hiking thing, but uh, the, the love of the outdoors came from. We had a, we had a dog when I was younger. Um, and I used to go out for walks with, uh, with the dog, with mum and dad, with my sister. Um, so from an early age, and when I say early, I'm talking sort of six or seven, I still have memories of, of walking down the local woods uh, here. I still live on the ed edge of a village and uh, literally a minute's walk from the house, I'm out, out in the, uh, the English countryside, the same place where I was walking uh, when I was six, seven, eight years old. So I don't know if, or I, I guess it was because I was walking from such a young age and out in the countryside and appreciating it and getting used to it and thinking, this is fantastic down here, you know, and before then, or sorry, after that, uh, you're down there with your, with, with your friends playing, you know, building camp and playing fortress and war and all that sort of things and running around the woods. And um, so I had, I think a love of the, of the outdoors instilled in me when I was younger and the through hiking thing didn't, sort of pop up in my life and think hey that through hiking thing looks fantastic it was more from when I sort of left school towards the end of school up until I was probably about 30 years old I was I wouldn't say I was unhappy or sad I, I think discontented is the word with the way my life was going um, school was trying to push me in one sort of direction basically you know you either need to go to college you need to go to university um, or you need to go and get a job. Um, if you're going to university, this is what you need to be studying. If you're going in to get a job, we think this is what you should be working. And nobody was really asking me what I, what I wanted to do. You know, there was all these people giving you advice, which is great. And I kind of went through my late teens and early 20s thinking that I should be taking all of this advice and what these people are telling me is, is where I should be heading. I should be getting a job. Uh, I should be getting married, I should be buying a nice car, having a nice house, um, having a couple of kids and then when that gets a bit boring you get a better car and you get a bigger house and so it goes on and a better job. Um, and I think it was about, I think it was about mid-twenties or whatever and I suddenly, I suddenly kind of stopped and thought I don't want to do this anymore, I don't, I don't want to get married, I don't want to have kids. 
I don't want a house because I don't want a mortgage. Um, I don't want to do all of these jobs because none of them interest me. I want to travel. I want to go out and see, you know, you hear people saying, I want to see the world. I want to travel. Um, so that was the spur. Through hiking was just kind of the, uh, the medium to get me there sort of thing. Um, let me expand a little bit more. I did some traveling around um, Europe, um, Spain, the Greek islands. And the through hiking happened when I was talking to a guy at a yoga center. I used to work at a yoga center in Greece for the summer. And I bumped into a Kiwi guy. His name was um, Bob. And he told me about that he'd just come back from Spain uh, and he'd done a long hike on an old pilgrim's route. And for some reason, my ears pricked up. Um, and I said, well, how long is it? How, how long did it take you? And he said it was 500 miles. It took me six weeks. And he told me these places he stayed, you know, there's, there's kind of refugees, really cheap sort of hostel places where you stay in every day. He said he met a load of people. The weather was fantastic. The food was great. The scenery was, was amazing. And he had me hooked two minutes in. I'm like, I need to go and do this hike. So I went to Spain. I did that hike. I actually tagged um, uh, a section on towards it. Every, when people talk about the Camino in Spain, they normally talk about a route called the Camino France, which is a 500 mile route through northern Spain. Uh, there's in fact numerous Caminos that all kind of feed into this one route and there's routes below it. So I tagged a route on uh, before in France, which was another 500 miles. So the whole route was, I think, a thousand miles. It took me, from memory, about three months. Um, and it was such a revelation because I finally, it was almost like I finally found what I wanted to do. The hiking was great. But it was the realization that I was doing something that I wanted to do, which was traveling. Uh, I was chasing my dreams, not necessarily chasing them. I'd caught them up and I was living my dream. Nice. And just this incredible sense of freedom. Like there was no, there was no alarm clock in the morning. There was no going to work. There was no routine. There was no getting home. There was no cooking dinner. Um, each day was completely different. Uh, I, get, I got up when I felt like I needed to get up. Um, and the day had no schedule, so I didn't know what was going to happen. And it, the, the freedom was just amazing. And, and when I got back, I was straight on the computer and I was just Googling long distance hiking trails. Um, so through hiking was more kind of the medium. It was the way it actually came about was just a sense of that I needed to travel and, uh, and find some sort of freedom, escape, that sort of thing. Yeah, they say that uh, one way, the first step in conquering a problem is realizing that you have a problem. Is this, is this when you realized that you were a drumomaniac? No, that was, um, uh, that was 2012, just after I got back from the uh, Appalachian Trail. And I hadn't even heard of the word. I stumbled across the word. I, uh, I think it was somewhere on, somewhere on the web or whatever. And obviously my eyes stopped on it because I had never seen the word. And when you, when you read a word you don't see, you stop and you think, what does that mean? And then you look it up. And I just saw this word, drama maniac. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And I think the literal translation is, I think it's from Latin, dromo, 
um, is to run um, and maniac is uh, to suffer from. Like if you have a mania, you right. suffer from something. So it's literally a, a, an addiction to walking, um, not to walking, addiction to, to sort of going places. Um, and if you have, I think it is actually, I don't, they say it's a, a recognized illness. I think illness is a little bit unfair because as far as I'm concerned, it's fantastic. You know, if right. someone's a drama mania, if they've got nothing wrong with them at all, it's, that's, it's a good that's thing. That's something good to have. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I kind of read it and I read the description. I thought, it kind of sounds like what I've got. And I think, I mean, I haven't got a serious case. I read reports of, like one guy in France apparently who would just one day leave home and he, he would just walk and he'd end up in Russia and other people that just leave their front door and they say, I, I just want to go for a walk. And they, they'd go to walk 200 miles just, just for the hell of it, just to kind of satiate this desire to travel. So, I mean, I've got a mild, I, I've got a mild form. I don't go out the back door and end up in Australia two years later, you know, looking disheveled or anything like that. But I've certainly got some sort of addiction to, I think it's travel. I think it's more, uh, as I said earlier, the freedom, the, the, the escape thing, just this need to get away from, you know, the, the, the nine to five computers and the normal, the normal schedule, the normal day. I, I, I need to get away from it. So I think that's, that's where it, uh, that's where it stems from. Yeah. And I think you've struck upon something that's very important that we should all pay attention to in our lives. And that is, um, this idea that something out of the, out of the ordinary or something ordinary kind of, kind of piques our interest and our ears go up. Like you said, you saw that word dromomania, uh, or you, your friend said the word, you know, talked about the, the Camino. Uh, I've had similar experiences with, with, uh, you know, long, I don't do as long distance as you do, but section hiking of the Jarman trail, that was something that just came out of the blue and, and somebody was talking about it and my ears pricked up. I think, it kind of goes back to what I, where I thought you were going to go when, when I was talking about um, how you and I came to be introduced. I thought you were going to go with this concept of, of synchronicity, but you went to the Facebook conspiracy uh, theory. But I think, there's, I think there are moments in our lives where something clicks in us unexpectedly, and we should follow up on that, on that click, follow up on that, that moment of awareness of, wow, this, this sounds like something I could do or I should do. Uh, it's, it's, it's weird how those, those moments take place and take your life in a whole different direction. Yeah, awareness is, I, I think awareness is the word, uh, the perfect word. Um, I still think a lot of us uh, are either not pre-programmed or maybe programmed by society, I, I don't know, but we have this accepted, like I said earlier, we have this accepted uh, process of, of of education and then and then working in the, the car the mortgage uh, you know marriage all that sort of thing and there's a few I say a few people I think probably a lot more now I mean when I was younger when I was a teenager traveling was just like it's a no-no if you said I was going to travel people would look at me like you're doing what aren't you supposed to be working or something and even now to a certain extent you know if people say to their parents or, or whatever I'm I want to go and walk the PCT for six months it's like, we know you can't do that. What are you doing? Are you some sort of idiot? 
and, and then you think, well, and am I, am I an idiot? Should I be, you know, should I be working and getting a mortgage or whatever? And I think people are sort of not necessarily scared of it, but well, maybe they are scared of it. I don't, I don't know, but it's those things that pop into your head, like you know, your friend talking to you about the John Moore John Moore Trail, me talking to a Kiwi guy at a yoga retreat in on a Greek island about the, the Camino, and you know, or I'd like to think that we know that when some a suggestion comes along or someone talks about something or we read about something or we or we see a movie or we read a book our head goes wow that looks fantastic i need to go and do that and at that point you either do it or you go and get married and buy a car and have a mortgage and that sort of thing you, you've got kind of two options i think it's what the adventurous spirit and the traveling thing is a lot more accepted now than it was when when I was a kid, which is a good thing. And I think it's gonna in the next few years as well. I think it's instead of being something that's that's frowned upon, um, I hope it's something that's uh, encouraged. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Now, this uh, dromomania in your your long hikes. How, what kind of impact did this have on your your working life in terms of uh, jobs, careers? We've talked to others on the, on the pod about how they they find jobs just to get enough money to finance their their travels, and then they they leave those jobs and, and go out and take these adventures and come back and uh, back into society and find another job to start saving up money for the next big adventure. Is that kind of similar to your experience? Um, I was, I guess, I, I think I was probably a little bit lucky. I mean, I know in the states that. Uh, the situation is different in Europe and England from the st than, than America. I know just from meeting people in the States who have jobs and saying, you know, I'm, I'm lucky if I get two weeks vacation time a year and I, I could never, ever go and do it through right. Cause if I, if I left my job, I wouldn't get another one and, uh, and all that sort of thing over here. It's a little bit more kind of relaxed. Obviously we have jobs and we have careers, but I don't, I think people are more, have a more, maybe a more liberal attitude to, to, to sort of go and travel. But um, I've forgotten the original question. What was the question? How did, how, how did this impact <laughs> your, your, your working life? Okay. Um, when I was in Greece working at the uh, yoga center, um, I, when I was talking to this, this, this Bob guy at the time, I think I was between, I think I just sold my house. I had a little bit of money in the bank. Uh, and I thought, right, I can get by on that, that money for a year. And uh, I went to Greece. Then I went to the Camino because I had the money, because I had the free time to do it. And obviously because I wanted to do it. Um, when I came back, I think I started, I was laboring for a builder for a few years. Then he kept asking him to do the decorating. So he built these houses and at the end of them, he'd say, you know, can, can you decorate it? So I'm like, why does this guy keep asking me to do all the decorating? And obviously I twigged that he seems to think that I'm a pretty reasonable decorator. So I did it for him for six months and then thought I can do this by myself and earn twice as much money in a day and not having someone to tell me what to do all the time. So uh, I went on my own, self-employed. I did that for about 10 years. So at that point, I didn't have ample time to through hike and I certainly didn't have ample finances to do it um, but towards the end of that period and this was 2010 
Um, I got the serious traveling escape urge, and this is where the PCT sort of came into the equation. And when I decided to do the PCT, I realized that I, that I wouldn't be able to sort of work, work or whatever. So I, I just, at the end of the day, I just emailed most of my clients and said, look, I'm going away for six months. I'll be back. If you want to get your decorating done by someone else, obviously I'm not going to stop you, but I'll be here, you know, at, at the end of September or whatever. And I'll be happy for your business when I get back. Thankfully, most of them uh, took that up. And when I got back, my, my, my job sort of picked up from where it left off. Um, and then I just went over to the writing thing. Um, I kind of got fed up with the, the decorating after about 10 years. In, in fact, fed up is an understatement. I absolutely hated it. Um, I wanted to get out of it. Um, I'd written a book, not done anything with it. And my head was just saying, if you did quit decorating and started writing for a living and it worked, as in you sold books and you had money coming in, you're free to do pretty much whatever you want to do. Because if I go hiking, I'm in a lucky enough position that I could go hiking for three months and my books are still selling because it's an online business. You know, I'm not sitting in my bedroom mailing out paperbacks every day. It's all, it's all done over the web. So obviously I have to check in and take care of it, but it put me in a very good position to, to, to do the stuff I wanted to do. So that's, that's when I chose the, uh, the writing thing and the, or that sort of career. But, yeah, it's a difficult, it, it, it's, it's along with leaving family and friends for six months, finding the time. I think everybody can find the money. Um, obviously, for some, it takes longer than others, but leaving jobs, leaving family, leaving friends, it's a hard one. But I think the positives, I think the positives far, far outweigh the negatives. Yeah, the writing thing, as you say, you, you're pretty good at the writing thing. Um, Thanks we're, very much. we're going to explore that in a little bit here, but I want to go okay. back to uh, that 2,600 mile trip on the, on the PCT that came after mm -hmm. you hiked the, the Camino, correct? Uh, yeah. After, as in about eight years, I did the Camino in 2002 right. and I did the PCT in 2010. Yeah. So we had BA uh, on the, on the podcast for an earlier episode and she talked about when she was on the Camino it seems to me there's a big difference between the PCT and the Camino. Camino sounds like pretty good hiking. You know, you, you stop at a hostel at the end of every, every uh, day of hiking and you, know, you pull up into the pub and have a beer. Uh, that's the way to hike. Uh, big, big difference between the PCT and the, and the Camino, right? Yeah, it's kind of, it, first of all, it's a huge difference. I mean, the, the PCT is, uh, is roughing it in terms of, uh, you know, we, we all stink. We don't get, we don't get a shower or we're lucky to get a shower once a week unless we're jumping in a lake. Um, we're eating crap food. Um, we don't see that many people. We're not going through civilization. The Camino is about as far opposite on the scale of, of through hikes from the PCT as you can get. It's, um, it's a very civilized hike. It's a very old hike, which I think is why there's so many amenities on it. Um, the last time I checked, which I think was three years ago, there was something like 220,000 people in one season that did the Camino, which gives you some sort of idea of numbers. I'm not currently up to date with what the PCT numbers are, but so there's a lot of people that do it. 
and obviously because there's a lot of people that do it they need servicing they need feeding they do, they, they want beds every night um so normally certainly on the spanish section you would expect to pass i don't know certainly one two three four maybe five uh, what they call refugees which is very simple accommodation so you you get a large room or several rooms with anything from two to 20 bunk beds in them um, there'd be a few showers um, possibly laundry facilities and normally within a stone's throw of the refuge uh, there'll be a restaurant there'll be a bar uh, the restaurant would probably have what's called a pilgrim's menu where you pay probably around about ten dollars get a three-course meal with a bottle of wine um, so it's if you're it's i say the camino is perfect a lot of people do the camino because they're going out there to, to sort of find themselves they say oh they want some sort of spiritual or certainly religious um experience because it is essentially funded not funded uh, founded uh for religious reasons anyway it's it's a pilgrimage to santiago cathedral to visit the uh the resting place of saint james which is one of jesus's disciples so a lot of people's primary reason for doing it is religious, but there's the spiritual thing as well. But it is ideal for someone that's also wanting to try out a through hike. You know, you can't, well, I suppose people do, you know, go and buy, buy a rucksack and a pair of hiking boots, get a, a flight to Santiago, and two days later they're, they're walking two and a half thousand miles to Canada. Um, a lot of them make it, some don't. Um, some of them kind of like to ease themselves in a, a little bit easier and have something that's a little more uh, user-friendly, should we say, and they know they're going to get somewhere to wash, uh, somewhere to sleep, a bed every night, and a restaurant. Um, so, yeah, it's about as far as from the PCT as you can get, but it certainly stirs the, uh, uh, the adventurous spirit, which is why I went on to the PCT afterwards. Yeah, so you could probably start the, the Camino with not that much preparation and planning i mean you'd have to know where you're starting and where you're where you're going to finish but uh certainly a lot different preparation for the the pct how long did you you plan for your your pct trip uh i think i just kind of went with what most people were taking and i thought at best absolute best five months um probably six um i think i ended up taking i think it was seven um I think it was the last or one of the last to finish that uh, that year. I finished way late just because I spent too much time in town drinking beer and I didn't plan it probably as well as I could do. I didn't sort of follow up on my mileage targets. So uh, that was I finished. Very, that was very well detailed in, in your book, The Last Englishman. Um, yeah. You could see that, that struggle going on within you, wanting to you know, make your miles and frustrated with yourself that you weren't making the miles, but you know, you were, you were having a good time and enjoying yourself. And, uh, I, I was, I cracked up every time you, you reached a further part of the trail and it was really late in the season. And someone would tell you, Hey, you know, it's, it's really late in the season. And you're like, yes, that's like the <laughs> third time someone has told me that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think again, at that point, um, even sort of, uh, Oregon, uh, I, I was so late that first of all you kind of get weird looks because you're in town. I mean, you know what through hikes look like. We just 
we look like homeless bums, we're filthy and you know, everything we've got is worn out. So you look like a through hiker and people see you in town, they look at you and they're like, the first thing they say is like, through hiking the PCT? And I'm like, yeah. And then you just know it's coming and like, a bit late, aren't you? <laughs> and I must have heard it so many times, but you know, they were right. And the, the silly thing was, um, I knew I was late and one side of me was, you need to get going. And I said this to myself every day, you need to put in 25 miles every day. You need to get to this place. Um, and more often than not, I would fail to sort of meet those targets. And the more I failed to meet those targets, there was kind of like a little voice in the back of my head, I suppose the voice of doubt, um, which constantly sort of nudged me in the back, back and said, Fozzy, you know, you're not going to make this just, get to the next road crossing, get a ride out and go and stay in an ice hotel and, and, and sort of go back home. And sometimes you think you're going to relent and listen to that little voice. And when you do have days where you think you're not going to make it, it just makes the situation worse because then you're thinking, well, I'm probably not going to make it. So it doesn't really matter if I spend an extra day in town or it doesn't really matter if I do 15 miles and not 25. So there's a constant... And I think most most through hikers to a degree get that uh, get that as well. There's constant um, psychological battles going on. Yeah, there there are several iconic scenes uh, from the last Englishman that really stuck with me, and we're going to talk about those a little bit later in, in the podcast. But going to take a quick break right now, and when we come back from the break, going to share with our our listeners a kind of a bombshell that Fozzie dropped on me in an email leading up to. Uh, this episode and he probably doesn't even know what the bombshell is but I'll share that when we when we come back from the break stay tuned from the backcountry to the backyard we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection since 1984 Sawyer products offers the best most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun bugs and water using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your pod- podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. This is best-selling indie author Keith Foskett, and if I'm not enjoying the great outdoors, I'm listening to the John Freaky in your podcast. 
All right. Welcome back, everybody. Before we get to the bombshell that I teased, um, it's from, from my experience of reading The Last Englishman, uh, Fozzie is a master storyteller. He does a great job painting a picture. And just curious, Fozzie, if you have any, any favorite stories or a favorite story from the trail that you'd like to share with us. Um, favorite stories from the trail. Um, there's an unusual one. Um, as we're on the subject, uh, as we were on the subject earlier on of conspiracy theories or you know UFOs and all that sort of thing. Perfect. Um, I can't remember exactly where I was on the trail when this happened, but I'll tell you where it was between. Um, it was between the Peter Grubb hut. Um, and Sierra City, which I think is kind of North California. Um, it was late afternoon, early evening, I don't know, five or six o'clock. Uh, I was walking up a, a real bitch of a hill. Uh, I got to the top and I just couldn't be bothered to go any further. I was tired and I just saw a flat spot. So I thought, right, okay, that's, uh, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm putting the tent up. I put the tent up. Uh, did my usual thing, relaxed, uh, ate some food, read a little bit, updated my diary, sun went down, uh, got into the tent, and I wake up, I think it must have been about one o'clock in the morning, something like that, and there was a bear sniffing around the tent. Uh, you, after a certain amount of time, you just get to know the sounds of bear mates, uh, the kind of snorts and gruffs and grunts and that sort of thing. Wow. So I hear this bear, and I'm guessing, okay, that's about maybe 50, 60 feet away. And it was in the rough direction where I brushed my teeth. So I walk away from the tent. Obviously, I hadn't walked far, far enough and I'm guessing it smelt the, uh, the toothpaste. So uh, I did what I usually do and just screamed, hey, bear, get the hell out of here sort of thing. And this thing charged off. And at that point, I thought, yeah, that's a bear unless it's an extremely large rabbit or, or something like that. This thing sounded big. I thought, yeah, that's a bear. I don't think rabbits snort. That's a fair point. It probably wasn't a, a rabbit in that point. Um, so at that point, obviously, I'm, I'm wide awake because there's a bear in, in, in the woods. The last thing I want to do is go back to sleep. I, I'd normally like to spend 20 minutes just lying there and listening. So it comes back. Bear comes back. I hear it again. Uh, so I got my whistle in my mouth and just blew this whistle and again, I just heard it thundering off and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, that, that's probably done it. So I lie back down and I think, okay, well, I just spend 20 minutes again, just to make sure this, this, this bear doesn't come back. So I'm lying there and it's as quiet, quiet as you like. There's no wind. I'm well away from any towns, roads or anything. Couldn't hear a thing, couldn't hear a thing. So I'm lying there, and at this point, when I recount this story afterwards, people tell me, no, you were dreaming, that, that, that couldn't have happened. It's, you were obviously dreaming. And I'm like, no, I wasn't dreaming because I was wide awake listening for bears. So I'm lying there. All of a sudden, this woman's voice screams through the tent, what are you doing here? Now, Obviously, this scared the crap out of me. I, I sat bolt upright in my sleeping bag. I started shaking. My head's like, why is there a woman outside of your tent at three o'clock in the morning? Why is she saying, what are you doing here? And I kind of stopped shaking. And I, all I could say was, what do you mean? What am I doing here? What, what the hell are you doing here? Nothing. 
silence. A couple of minutes later, I, I kind of calm down, stop shaking, I, I unzip the temp, I, I get out and I look around, there's no one there. There's no one there. And the, the weird thing that struck me was the ground was kind of as you'd expect in the middle of the woods, like there's dead twigs, there's dead dried up leaves everywhere. You can't walk on that stuff without making some sort of sound. So I, I didn't sleep for the rest of the night. The following morning, I'm I'm getting ready to go, I have a coffee, and a guy stops on a quad bike, he's riding up the hill on a quad bike, transpires, he's working in a building site, he rides up the top of the hill to get cell reception to make a phone call. And he just stopped to say hello, he said, hey, how, how are you doing, that sort of thing, and I'm like, all right, and we got onto the subject somehow of what happened that night. And I felt like a bit of an idiot for, because you don't meet someone and they say, hey, you know, do you believe in ghosts, because I think I saw one last night, you know, but, I happened to mention it and he just looked at me nonplussed and he says, yeah, I'm not surprised. And I kind of looked at him and I said, what do you mean you're not surprised? He said, he said, I regularly, regularly meet uh, hikers up here that, that have camped and he said, they hear, they hear stuff in the woods. And he said, there's old homesteads around here from, you know, the 1800s, uh, abandoned houses, that sort of things. He says, uh, a lot of things go out in the woods, go on, go out, out and, and go on out in the woods and he says uh you can call it a ghost uh he said whatever you want to call it um told him to have a good hike and, and carried on up the top of the hill wow great story i don't doubt you at all i, I believe that 100 percent. that's crazy i was so scared <laughs> I, I i wasn't scared that i mean it went through the head that it could be a it could be a ghost which doesn't scare me because I've had a couple of experiences, but they don't really scare me. What scared me was if it wasn't a ghost, what the hell is a woman doing outside my tent at three o'clock in the morning? But Very good question. Which is, which is yeah. more probable? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a woman outside. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, before I get to that bombshell again, um, I'm, I want to ask one more follow-up question because I, I, this came to mind as you were describing uh, you being in your sleeping bag. Do you, do you do a tent or you prefer tent, tarp, or cowboy camping? Um, I've done all three and I guess my preference would be the one that I normally sort of go back to, which is, which is the tent. Uh, I mean, I had a hammock for a while as well. I did most of the Appalachian Trail with a hammock. Uh, I cowboy camped on the PCT. It took me a few weeks because being English over here, we don't really have stuff that can kill you or maul you or bite you or sting you but over in the states you know you, you your sport for choice was snakes and scorpions and all that sort of thing so when i first saw people cowboy camping on the pct i'm like i i, I can't do that i don't want stuff crawling in my <laughs> sleeping bag i'm fine with it in england um but i did cowboy camp on the pct when i got more more comfortable with it but um i use a tarp occasionally but I think the tent is just kind of, it's the good all rounder. It's, there's issues with everything. Uh, you can't use a hammock unless you've got trees. So a lot of heights you, you can't really do with a hammock unless it's the AT. You couldn't really do the PCT with a hammock because there's just long stretches with no trees. Um, sleeping under a tarp is fine. But again, if you've got insect problems like mosquitoes, uh, north of the states, Appalachian Trail in particular, 
Um, that doesn't really work too well. Um, so 10 is, it's just a good all rounder. You know, you've got, you've got protection from the, from the insects. You've got protection from creepy crawlies. You've got protection from ghosts to a certain <laughs> degree. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's, that's my go-to okay. shelf. So that's what I'm comfortable with. So. All right. Yeah. And I'm reminded of, um, in, in The Last Englishman, your fear of snakes and scorpions, as you mentioned, and you, you kept a, a kind of a, a snake sighting count in the book mm. on yeah. you know, how, many, how many you saw and how many were false alarms. You, you were really yeah. concerned about that. And I think also, you know, long distance hiking, it forces us to come to grips with things and wrestle with, with our own issues. And uh, by the end of that PCT hike, I mean, I, I imagine you weren't uh, as uh, overly concerned with with snakes or with other uh, inconveniences you just kind of you wrestle with that stuff and you come to grips with it and you accept it and you you, you kind of take it for what it is I did wrestle with it hugely um, again coming back to sort of being English and living in England there's nothing over here that, I mean we have one native poisonous snake and I think fatality rate from that is something like a half a percent you've either got to be very old or a young child so uh, you can go out anywhere in the UK. There's no bears, there's no wolves, there's no dangerous snakes, there's uh, there's no scorpions, that sort of thing. My biggest fear uh, of going to do the PCT, and it got to the point where I very nearly didn't go because my head just couldn't get a handle on bears. The thought of camping in the middle of the woods and realising there's a bear outside your tent or walking up this trail and, and startling a, a mummy bear and two cubs um, and the stories you hear. And it got to the point where I'm just like, I can't do it. I can't go. I'm just going to be absolutely terrified of, of, of bears. And if I could get around the bear thing, I'm going to be bitten by a rattlesnake. You know? <laughs> and your head's just going, your head's just in turmoil. And you're right. You do... Once you're out there, I think on the first day, after everybody saying, don't worry, Fuzzy, you probably the entire PCT, you won't see a snake. I saw two rattlesnakes within two hours of starting from the Mexico border. One of them was huge. Um, That's not a good start. It's not a good start, but <laughs> I think in, in retrospect, it was almost like some higher force had put them there to kind of like get me used to it from day one because after I guess about two or three weeks, I got used to, to, to rattlesnakes. The great thing about rattlesnake is, and if anybody's listening and, and has got this phobia of, of snakes, the rattlesnake, I wouldn't say is the most, well, I don't think any snakes are exactly friendly, but the great thing about a rattlesnake is it's kind of like, it'll let you know that it's there. Nine times out of 10, if you get too close, it'll let you know. So even if you don't see it, and you're getting too near and you're about to, to step on it or get bit, it'll rattle and, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, there's a snake there, thanks, thanks for letting me know, and you, mm -hmm. you, give, it a, you give it a wide burst. So I actually got to the point where I enjoyed seeing rattlesnakes. I used to get as close as I dared just to study them just because it was a novelty for, for an English guy. And even bears I got, um, I got used to as well. They still scared me, but... I had a couple of experiences with bears and once you kind of get used to their behavior and it's true what they say that the vast majority of the time with bears, if you just shout and 
whatever and, and make yourself big, they'll, they'll run away the vast majority of the time. So wow, what, a turn right what a turnaround there. for you. Yeah, it was, and I mean, seeing bears in the wild as well, I mean, they're such magnificent, amazing creatures that it, it, it is a privilege to see them. Um, and yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad, obviously I made the decision to go just not, not turn back on the basis of, of seeing a bear or a snake. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you because I have this, I have this great new image in my mind of, uh, you know, you with your fear of snakes the first day, everybody telling you, Hey, don't worry, you're not going to see a snake at all. And then you see two that in the first couple of hours there, I, I just have this image of this, this internal narrator in your head saying, well, it, it's not gone well. <laughs> that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much what happened even the guy i was walking with on the first day was a guy called gabe i think he was from orange county somewhere and he said to me I, you know we got onto the bet onto the snake thing he said fuzzy don't worry you won't see any snakes 10 minutes later <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great now if you if we were to do some hiking in montana i'd be really concerned because they have large animals in montana they, they've got grizzly bears they've got they've got moose uh, those things can do some serious damage and they are not uh shy at all so we talked a little, little bit about that last episode uh that um you know the black bears on the on the pct or the john muir trail not nearly as much as a threat as a a grizzly that'd be that's scary stuff yeah, I think grizzlies, um, I mean, I didn't see any. I know they do have them in, I believe they have them in Washington. Um, yeah, different uh, different kind of bear. I think a lot more uh, a lot more unpredictable, more territorial. Uh, for want of a better description, I think you can piss a, a, piss a grizzly off easier than you can do a, a brown or a black bear. So I, I certainly wouldn't have liked to encounter a grizzly but you know having said that we're talking about being scared of grizzlies and you know i got used to i got used to snakes and i got used to, to black bears and brown bears after being terrified of those so grizzlies are a different a, a different sort of bear but you know you could possibly if you're in grizzly country for six months and people do spend long periods of time up in grizzly country and you know they get used to them yeah there was a a documentary on i think it was netflix it was called the grizzly man and I've so, seen that. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't going to spoil the ending for you, but uh, no, it, it's fascinating. It, the narrator, the narrator kicked in and said, you know, it's not gone well. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was the guy's name? Tim, Timothy something, I think, wasn't it? I can't remember, but um, yeah, just watching that. Um, it just kind of made me cringe how that guy could even get that close, but he obviously understood them to a point. Obviously something went badly wrong at the end of it, but um Ozzy, the master of understatement. Something went bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little bit more serious than that. But Okay, I think we've kept the audience in suspense long enough about this bombshell. So I'm sure you probably don't even realize what, what it was, what the bombshell was. But I got an email from Fozzie, uh, I don't know, a week ago, a couple weeks ago, as we we're planning on, on this episode. And he just casually laid out for, there for me. Um, I don't do through hiking anymore. I gave that up. I gave up long distance hiking. And that just, uh, it kind of stopped me in my tracks and made me sad and kind of, kind of struck my soul. So, uh, what, what happened there? Why, why did you give up the, the long distance hiking? Uh, it was, 
I guess this has probably been going on for about three years, I suppose. Let me start by saying that my life, as I suppose everybody's life, you, you go through lives and you have kind of interests, you have hobbies, uh, you know, I don't know, mountain biking, parachuting, driving a rally car, uh, yachting, reading or whatever. We all have these interests that we like to do because we find them enjoyable or uplifting or adventurous, that sort of thing. Um, and sometimes they're with us with us for life like we get into something at 17 years old and we we die at 85 and we do that one particular activity for the whole of our lives and we love it some activities we we sort of try for maybe a couple of months and we think yeah i thought i'd like that but i i don't really like it i've tried it i don't i don't want to sort of pursue it or we have stuff that lasts maybe 5, 15, 20, 25 years, that sort of thing. Now, I mean, I've been through hiking for uh, up until last year when I stopped. It was about 17, 18 years. And I wish I could give you a better answer, but I just, my head just got tired of it. My body's fine. I mean, physically, I think I'm in better shape now. I'm 51 now. I think I'm in better shape now than I was when I was 17 years old. I mean, physically, I'm. I had no issues with at all. I could go out and do the CDT, the last of the big three, you know, next month I could go out there and I know my body would, would, would cruise through it. But my head was just saying to me, do you really want to do this anymore? Are you really getting the mojo you, you were getting out of it 17 years ago? And I questioned it when this, <coughs> this voice first started suggesting this about three, three years ago. I'm kind of like, uh, no, I'm still enjoying this, you know, leave me alone. I, I, I still want to do the true hiking thing. And uh, slowly it starts sort of nibbling away at you. And I eventually went out to, I did another Camino route called the Via de la Plata, which is a route from Seville in southern Spain to Santiago, where most of them finished last year. It was about 600 miles. And I did it primarily again for my for my escape fixation and my freedom fixation, and I thought it'd make a great book. And I was fine for about ten days, and then about the eleventh day, I'm kind of like, Are "You, you really enjoying this? Do you really want to do this anymore?" And I'm like, "Yeah, of course I want to do it." You know, stop, uh, stop listening to your doubts, Fozzy. And the following day, I got up again and kind of left the refuge. And my head started to to accept this idea that maybe my through hiking days were just weren't as exciting as they were when I first started doing them, and perhaps it had just run its course, and maybe I should focus doing other things which I'd sort of developed an interest in. I'm sure I'll come on to that in a minute. Um, and I fought it for a few few more days and I remember the final morning, I think it was about after two and a half weeks, I got up in the morning and I literally walked, I think about three miles and I thought, no, it's done. I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And I think I walked another two miles to this, found this little village and it was still about seven o'clock in the morning because I started hiking about six in the morning out in Spain because it was so hot. So maybe it was about eight o'clock, found a bar that was open, got into the bar, managed to have a Google Translate with the uh, the barman, order some toast and a coffee, and I said, is there a taxi around here? And he says, yeah, where do you want to go? I said, Seville Airport. 
taxi arrived, took me to Seville, stayed in half stores, home the following day. The weird thing was, I kind of expected to be sad, you know, I expected to be sad in the taxi, I expected to be sad uh, that evening in Seville, I expected to be sad on the plane, and I expected to spend two weeks back in the UK being sad, but I wasn't, I was happy, I was, I was smiling a lot, it was like this huge weight had been lift, lift, lifted, and it kind of took me back to a game when I was 17 years old, we were talking about earlier this expectation of what we should be doing. And people were saying, no, you shouldn't be doing this. You need to carry on through life. You need to write more books. And all, all my head was, it was like being with the careers officer back when I was 17 years old. You need to go and do this job. You need to get a mortgage. You need to do this sort of thing. Um, and I'm comfortable with the decision, still am now. Um, I still hike. I go out for, you know, a few overnights. I go out for a week, maybe two weeks. And you know what? I change my mind so often that, in six months' time, I could be making plans to do the, the Continental Divide Trail next year and go and do it. I don't know. Um, my mind chops and changes uh, all the time. But at the moment, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, I won't be doing another through like at least not, not of several months' duration. No. So if you do change your mind, you have to send me an email on this because, you know, the, the, the knowledge that you had given it up struck me so hard that, you know, you just have to keep me updated on that. I will. Okay. No Okay. Very good. So, so you do do some, you know, multi-day hikes still and just not the long distance. What else, what are, what other new plans do you have for, for adventure? Cause I know you, you may have given up on, uh, you know, months at a time, but you haven't given up your sense of adventure. No, far from it. Um, it's probably the most important thing is, 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 is being as close to sort of freedom as I can, I, I can get. So, um, I still, as I said, I still do the odd hike. I mean, my, my usual pre-season hike in the UK is something called the South Downs Way, which is my local trail. I can literally, <laughs> I can drive there and be there in sort of 20 minutes. Uh, it follows a range of hills from, from 100 miles, for 100 miles. And normally the first good weather window over here with warmish weather, which could be sort of April or May, uh, I go out and, and, and hike it. I've hiked it, I think, every year for about the last seven or eight years. I haven't done it this year yet because of the virus, so we haven't managed to get out. I'll do that one. But I'm kind of veering towards um, uh, bikepacking. Uh, I've probably been riding longer than I have hiking. I love, uh, I love bikes. I like... Uh, I'm doing sort of some road racing this year or trying to do some road racing. Um, and I did tour, um, I did some cycle touring in my mid twenties. Uh, that was the last time I did it. Um, but the last couple of years, I guess at the same sort of time where my head was saying, um, do you really want to be through hiking anymore? My head started rolling around and thinking, well, if you're not doing that, what are you going to do? And then I just thought about bike touring, bike packing, and it, it just started ticking a lot of boxes. And the last two years, I've been heavily back into bikes. I haven't been touring yet. Um, I wanted to go this year. In fact, I'd probably be out there now again if we weren't on the lockdown thing. Um, I think the first one is I'd, I'd like to cycle down to uh, southern Spain, to Seville, I went 
1980, this probably makes me sound too old, I don't even know if I should mention <laughs> dates, but um, 1985, I cycled, went on a cycling tour with a friend of mine, I think I was 16. Um, and it was one of my first kind of big escapes, uh, adventure sort of thing. We cycled down through France, got about halfway down, turned, turned around, sort of came back. I think it was five weeks. But I'm still, one of the guy I went with, I'm still friends with, is an old school friend. Um, and I emailed him a few months ago. I said, hey, have you still got the route we did through France in, in 85? And I'm in my head thinking, there's no way he's going to have that route. Two weeks later, he sends me an Excel spreadsheet of not only the routes, but the road numbers, the towns, how long we stayed, where we ate, how much we spent. Wow, detail-oriented. Uh, yeah, my head's just doing somersaults. So the plan is to follow that route just just because um and then once i get halfway through sort of france instead of turning back carry on to the spanish border probably link up with one of the camino routes to santiago and then follow the via de la plata which is the one i tried hiking last year down to seville and from seville I haven't really got plans um which is a good thing. Um, I could fly back home if I've had enough of it. If if I'm having a time in my life, then I'll make a decision where I want to go then. I think that's half the fun, not having too many plans or too strict a schedule. And if I enjoy that trip, then we'll see. Um, I've got a huge interest. Have you seen, I don't know, are you into cycling or not, not, not into cycling or? Uh. I, I don't cycle too much myself, no, but uh, okay. I have friends that do. Okay. There's, um, I guess the, the peak of the game is they have these, in, there's these endurance rides going on at the moment, like riding across America is something ridiculous, like 11 days, like these guys, you know, they get three hours sleep a night and then they get back on the bike. But there's something, I think it's called the transcontinental, the trans Europe route, which I think starts from London and finishes in, I think Istanbul, I'd have to check my facts, don't quote me on it. I think it's about 3,000 miles. And you basically, you plan your own route. You can take whatever route you want. You can stop whenever you want. You can eat whenever you want. There's checkpoints on the way where you log in so they know you've done what you're supposed to have done and the timings. And it's kind of like a, an unmarshaled race, the first one to, to Istanbul, finishes but instead of like you know the tour de france you're carrying all your gear so you've got some sort of shelter or a tent or uh, you know you're carrying your food that sort of thing and these guys are doing 300 miles in a day which is just mind-boggling now whether a i'm fit enough or b my head's in good enough place that i can get on a bike and do 300 miles i'm sure i can do it whether i can do it for 10 days straight with two hours sleep every night. I don't know. So that's like the upper, the upper scale of, of where I'm thinking. So there's anything from a, a sort of a two or three week amble down to Seville and back to London up to 3000 miles in 10 days lunacy. I don't know yet, but that's where my head's kind of, kind of going. Yeah. As you were describing that, that uh, endurance race or not a race, but uh, route across Europe, I was reminded of a documentary I once saw, I think it was on, I don't know, Netflix or Amazon uh, about going across the U S these bikers that went across the U S and it kind of documents their, their efforts. And it was, it was a great documentary. I, unfortunately, I don't remember the name of it. Um, 
would also like to suggest to you, if you're looking for a, a new adventure, have you ever seen the, the documentary called uh, The Barkley Marathons? No, I haven't heard of that. What is that? Got to check that out. Um, the Barkley Marathons is this race uh, that takes place in, I think it's Tennessee. And the route is a 20 mile, approximately 20 mile route. And they do it, you have to do it five times. So 100 miles in uh, 60 hours. And it is you know, there is no clearly defined path. It's up the side of a mountain through these thickets. And uh, it was, uh, it's a great documentary inspired by an escaped felon. In fact, the guy, I think it was James Earl Ray who, who shot Martin Luther King. Um, he escaped from the prison in Tennessee and the, the wilderness was so thick out there that he only made it like six miles before they caught him 60 hours later. And so this guy was inspired by that and said, you know, I could have gone further than that. So he developed this race called the Barkley Marathons. It's completely insane. And it almost, it must be the first time that there's an endurance race has ever been based on an escaped convict. Yeah, probably. <laughs> there, there are several years that there are no finishers of the five laps. Wow. Yeah, it's, 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 check it out if you have a chance. Yeah, I might, uh, I might have a look at that later. That'll be a, a true Yeah, watch this space. You never know. Yeah. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into uh, Fozzie's life as an author and delve a little bit into the book that I read that he wrote, The Last Englishman. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Fozzie, let's talk a little bit about your life as an author. How did, how did you get into that? Um, you are obviously a gifted storyteller. You're, the, the book, uh, Last Englishman, was just phenomenal. I re highly recommend it to everybody who's listening. Um, but how did, how did that get all started for you? And, and kind of what's your process for writing? It, it got started purely because ever, ever since I was kind of young, I kind of enjoyed English at school, like uh, English literature. We have English language, we study English language and English literature. Language is more the grammar and how you write it. Literature is literally the reading, that's that sort mm -hmm. of thing, and, 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 and the actual books. Um, and I kind of, they were probably my two favorite lessons. Why, I don't know, I didn't question it at the time, I just, I just enjoyed them. And I think that there's no better reason other than the old saying is, of, we've all got a book in us and that that always was in in the back of my head somewhere we've all got a book in us and i didn't even know if i could write um arguably a lot of people say i still can't but um <laughs> i remember when i got i thought the stumbling block and i think most writers stumbling block is actually finding something to write about which was which was my issue for a few years um <clears throat> when i went out to do the Camino for the first time, I thought, right, you've potentially got a book in this. Um, I was kind of veering if, that if I was gonna write, it was gonna be some sort of travel thing because I just enjoyed it, the passion was there. And if you're passionate about what you're writing about, then it, it, it should shine through. So I took a couple of notepads with me, a couple of pencils, and I had a dictaphone 
which I used to talk to during the day, instead of stopping and writing something down, which was just sort of hassle, I had a, a little dictaphone in, in my uh, in my packed pocket. So if I saw, I don't know, a beautiful bird or something, or a really nice trail, or if I was having a bad day, I just I just take the dictaphone and I'd record my thoughts, my observations, how I was feeling, and everything that happened to me during those one thousand miles. And every evening I'd write those notes up in my diary. So when I got back home, I had this diary full of notes and memory joggers of, 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 of what sort of happened, along with the photographs as well. Um, and I think I wrote, at the end of the Camino, I actually went to Florida for three months. I worked on an organic farm um, just because I didn't want to spend... Uh, I got back from the Camino in October and I, I didn't want an English winter. So I went to Florida, volunteered on a farm for a few months. Uh, and I started writing the book there on the owner. The owner left, lent me her laptop. And I probably wrote about 80% of the book in Florida. Um, she even proofread a lot of it for me. Then I came back home and I, I just kind of left it. It sat on my computer for seven years, I think. Wow. Um, didn't do anything with it, kind of lost interest, got tied up with decorating and working, the usual, the usual stuff. And my mum, on regular occasions, used to say, how's the book coming along? And I used to say, you know, it's, it's doing all right, mum. And in fact, it was just sat there for seven years doing nothing, but I used to sort of try and keep her happy and say, you know, it's, it's doing all right. And I think it was 2009, I thought, you've written 80% of this book and it's just sat there for seven years. It's ridiculous. Do something about it. If it's rubbish, it's rubbish. You know, at least, at least you've written a book and it's, there might be something in it. So I remember getting to January, making a new year's resolution. You finish that book, you get it published and you give the first copy to mum on Christmas day. So that was the plan. I finished it. Uh, I found an editor. She edited it all. Um, I did the usual thing, which which writers do, not so much these days of self-publishing, but um, and we'd send fifty letters out with the first chapter to recognised publishing houses, mm -hmm. and you then you just kind of wait. Um, out of those fifty, you could probably expect maybe ten replies, all of which are a stock computer-generated answers, something along the lines of we don't see a market for this book. So all of that happened. And at the time, this was 2009, my editor said, have you thought about self-publishing? And I'm like, what, what the hell's self-publishing? And she explained that you, uh, you go to Amazon, you upload your book, and you, you sell it as an e-book, and people, people buy it on Amazon. So I thought, well, if that's the only way I can get my book to market, that's what I'll do. So she, she finished editing it. Um, I think I cobbled together a terrible cover, which I look, look at back on now and still cringe at. Um, and I remember, I, I think I, there was some button, like I clicked on the final button, like, you know, do you want to approve this book? And I clicked it. And this was a week before Christmas, and I'm like, this is getting a bit fine. I hadn't told mum I was going to give her a copy on Christmas Day, but I'm like, this is getting a bit fine. And it said, do you want a proof copy? So I clicked on yes. 
unfortunately there wasn't any box saying can you please send this really quickly but i just clicked on the the proof copy the proof copy dropped through my door on christmas eve wow as soon as i saw the parcel i thought it had a little amazon logo on it i'm like holy crap that's that's my book and the feeling of opening it i mean a lot of authors will say when you first see your book or you hold it in your hands it's just your body is all kind of tingly you think damn that's my book i've just written that and i'm holding it and i kind of wrapped it up in christmas paper and gave it to uh, gave it to mum on christmas day so that's how it happened um but the yeah the inspiration i guess was 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 the camino so and it's just it's gone from there it's just it's just snowballed from there really yeah, and for clarity the, the title of that book was uh, that's the journey in between. The journey in between. The and your, between. your latest book is High and Low, correct? Yes. And so um, I know you, you wrestle with some, some big issues in that book. I do. Um, the story behind High and Low, in 2015, I went, um, I flew to the States again to do the last of the big three and hopefully get my triple crown. So I, I flew to New Mexico to do the Continental Divide Trail. <coughs> uh, it was about 550 miles in and uh, I got choppered out with uh, what they thought was, well, I thought was a heart attack, but it transpired was uh, uh, pneumonia. I spent a day in, in the hospital in Albuquerque and the doctor's parting words were, you're not doing any strenuous exercise for three weeks. So I flew back home, hike over, big disappointment. Uh, looked after myself for, I think, about four or five weeks. Got itchy feet. Uh, at this point, it was kind of late summer, so another big through hike was it was just too late to do it and probably not the best of ideas to go back and try it bearing in mind what had happened so i, I just thought well, what am i going to do and i just started looking at shorter routes closer to home and i thought i always had this dream to walk across scotland um walking across any country you can't sort of dictate mileage it is what it is whatever route you took it ended up being 600 miles um just something I always wanted to do. Scotland's a beautiful country. And I had a torrid, really torrid time. Um, I knew something wasn't right sort of prior, the two years prior to that hike. My head wasn't in a good way. Um, I don't know if it was sadness or unhappiness, maybe confusing thoughts, uh, what I was doing, regular sort of periods of what I now know is depression, but at the time was just, you just can't, it's, it's a hard one to explain unless you've, you've experienced it. Um, just sadness, you don't really know what you want to do. And I had no idea that this was depression. I just thought my life was sort of on a, an emotional sort of roller coaster of up and down. I didn't question it. Just thought I was having a bad day, bad couple of days. Um, so I get to the, I get to Scotland, I start hiking and I think certainly there was a lot of factors that didn't help. The hike was very wet. I think when I got back, the hike took 31 days and I think I calculated it had rained for 28 of them. Wow. Not constantly, but at some point during the day it would have rained. Um, so that was kind of depressing in itself. Right. Um, 
and my head just just went downhill i don't know maybe there was disappointment they say depression there's usually a kickstart or maybe a bereavement or a divorce or or something like that so whether it was the fallout from the dream of hiking the cdt didn't happen maybe it was the weather maybe it was the thought that when i got back that's the end of the summer and winter's coming which is always a bad one but my head was all over the place it was i can reliably say it was probably the worst 31 days of my life scotland was amazing absolutely glorious country couldn't have wished to be in a better place um but I didn't know what was going on. Again, I just thought I was having a bad spell, albeit a 31-day bad spell. Um, and I came back home and things just got worse and worse and worse to the point where I'd be trying to write and I, I just couldn't write. I'd be staring out the window. At times, even my hands started shaking uncontrollably. And I remember getting a phone call from a a friend and I picked the phone up I wasn't answering calls to, to lots of people but this this particular person a good friend I picked the phone up and she said hi and I said hi and I think she she could just tell by the sound of my voice she said what's wrong and I think I started crying and just told her what had happened and the first thing she said was you've got depression and I'm like what are you talking about she said you it sounds like you've got depression uh, and I'm like, well, I'm not depressed. She said, it's not, it's two different things. She said, everybody can be depressed. Have, being depressed and having depression is two different things. She said, go and see a doctor. So I went to see the doctor the following day. And uh, I think just from the look on his face after talking for me, to me for two minutes, he knew and he says, yeah, you've got depression. Um, so That's the book... That phone Sorry. call, with your, that phone call with your friend, that was yeah. that was one of those moments we were talking about earlier. Yeah, that was a timely phone call. Yeah, yeah, yep. that was a timely phone call. Um, that was kind of the answer to what was to, to what was happening. She she knew straight away. She'd obviously experienced it with some of her friends. Maybe she'd experienced herself. I don't know. She's not told me that, but she knew. She knew as soon as I told her. Um, so high and low is. Is the memoir of, of, of that hike across Scotland while coming to terms with the fact that I, I, I had depression and still do to a certain extent. That's my next book I'm going to read. That, uh, I, want to, I want to take a, a cruise through that. That sounds amazing. It's a fun, it's, when I was writing, I never, I never began that book with the thought that I was going to write about depression. I was just going to write about a, mem a hiking memoir across Scotland. I got to chapter two. And I just started writing about depression. I thought, well, maybe I didn't want to confuse genres and have a cross genre, like a, a hiking memoir with depression thrown in. It didn't sound right. And I kind of paused and thought, do you really want to do this? But I went with it anyway, because it, it felt the right thing to do. And I thought maybe at that point, I thought, well, maybe I can actually help some people here as well. And out of all the books I've written, it's the one that I think the Amazon reviews on that are higher than all the other five books I've written. I didn't think it would do very well, but it's, it's actually doing, in terms of reviews, the best out of all of them. So I think it, 
he says something. It was a difficult book to write, but very difficult book to write. Obviously, it, it resonates with people. And uh, like, yeah. like all good trail memoirs, I guess. I, I, I mean, I, I can't even generalize to that, but it's something that I said earlier is that we, you're out there and you come to grips, you're coming to grips with things. And so. Uh, yeah. And it also, obviously when I, I had the diagnosis that my next thoughts were, well, how do I, how do I stop depression? I mean, the easy answer is you can't stop depression, but you can take steps to make it better and, and drastically improved it. And the first thing that came through to my head were antidepressants. Now I'm not a, I'm not a big pill guy. I don't like taking pills. I take an ibuprofen if I've got a headache, but mm-hmm. I avoid pills like the plague. I just don't believe them. <clears throat> the main issue I have with antidepressants is they're not solving the problem. They're covering up the symptoms, which is what a lot of pills do these days. So I took a different route and as I normally do, I'm kind of kind of like a healthy guy. I look after myself. I eat well, I drink a lot of water. I don't drink too much. I've quit smoking. I exercise, all that sort of stuff. So I just Googled basically how to naturally cure depression, I think, or something along those lines. And I settled on a list of, I think, 15 points of how I can improve my lifestyle to combat the depression. And it worked. I mean, when I look at how I was, I'm trying to think when I was, I wrote the book about three years ago after I got back from Scotland, which is, is probably the lowest my life has ever been to how I am now, which is probably the highest or the happiest I've ever been. I still get bouts of depression, but they're far more infrequent. They're nowhere near as severe. And I'm convinced, well, it has, there's no other reason to to explain it than than the steps I took. And I list all of those steps in uh, in the back of the book. I wanted to pass them on and, and, and help other people. And I do get regular emails about people that have read the book and, and said this really resonated. I'm going to take your steps. And emails from people that have taken them and said, you know, I feel so much better than I used to do. And I don't think I don't think antidepressants is the answer, but that's a, another another podcast in itself, I suppose. Yeah. What did we do before Google? What did we do before Google? Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the benefits there. We talked about, you know, the the computer listening in on your conversations with your friend and popping up advertisements uh, accordingly. But this was a, a positive result from uh, from the Google. And it makes you wonder what's going to happen after this conversation. We go to our Facebook feed. It's going to have how to survive bear attacks and recover from depression. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, great. That's great. Hey, I, I want to delve into uh, some of The Last Englishman with you because I just thought it was an outstanding read. It really gave a clear depiction and understanding of what trail life is like for that 2,600-mile stretch from, from Mexico to Canada. Thank you. Um, and I, I, felt, I think what really struck me was the opening of the book and that piece where you were talking about the planning and you're ready to go and then five days before you're to leave for your trip the volcano explodes yeah disrupts air traffic all over europe especially northern europe and you were caught in a in a place where you had to make a decision on how you were going to get from from england to california 
with this huge obstacle in your path. I mean, there, everything was shut down in England, correct? There was no flights going out of England at that point. No, nobody, I think no, there was no, no flights in Northern Europe, period. I think Spain, they were, they were taking off. But um, yeah, I, don't, I guess most people will remember the, the volcanic, the Icelandic volcanic eruption in 2010. I'm not even gonna try and attempt the name of the volcano because it's just, right. it's just gibberish unless you speak Icelandic. But there was a volcano out in Iceland that erupted in 2010 and threw the whole of Northern Europe into, uh, or certainly the flights in the Northern Europe into chaos. I think that was, it's, it, it, it was interesting looking back because it, it kind of, in a weird sort of way, mirrors through hikes because through hikes are a battle of wills. You, you get regular, regular thoughts of quitting, getting off trail because you've had enough, you know, you're too hot. You, you, everything's just you need to get off the train and then the following day you're like i'm having the time of my life this is fantastic so my first test before i'd even got to the trail or even even the usa was a letter from virgin airways saying your flight has been cancelled here's your refund that was also particularly upsetting because the flight was super cheap from a friend who worked in the trade and it was business class ouch so it was like it was a double whammy a double negative and I thought, well, you want to get out for kickoff. <laughs> there was a kickoff party in, at mm. Lake Marino in, in, in those days. I don't think they do it anymore. Um, and I think it's something like five days away. And the reports were coming as like, you know, maybe we'll be flying tomorrow, maybe in seven days. And at some point, my head just like, right, just go. So I grabbed my rucksack. Um, I booked... Um, a train to Paris, a train from Paris to Madrid. And I thought, well, when I get to Madrid, I'll just go to the airport. I knew planes were flying from Madrid because it was way out of the dust cloud. So I get to Madrid airport, find a flight and get out. And luckily enough, the, the train journey went super smoothly. Um, I got to Madrid airport, played a, paid a ludicrous price for a, a flight to, I can't remember, I think it was LA, I'm not sure. Um, and I think the entire trip took something like 48 hours from leaving England to getting to San Diego was 48 hours. I mean, I was knackered, as we say in England. Um, <laughs> I will never, ever complain about one of my, one of my trips or a, a layover somewhere. <laughs> it's not going to be a 48-hour ordeal like this. That kind of puts, puts things in perspective. That's, that's ludicrous. It does. I think... It, you know, we touched on it earlier as well in that you, you need this, this, this strong sort of mental attitude. And I thought my strong mental attitude would kick in or I'd need it on day one, walking through, walking through a desert. I'd never walked through in 40 degrees heat with rattlesnakes. I thought that's where my mental fortitude would kick in. I had no idea it would be, you know, that my flight was cancelled and I'd have to, I'd have to get out there. But um, yeah, that volcano's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> now there were there were several iconic scenes uh from the last englishman sometimes you read a book and you put it down and and two months later you can't you can't remember a whole lot of detail but there are several scenes that i would call iconic that really stayed with me for for a long time afterwards and you know i don't want to spoil the book for anybody we're not going to get into too much detail on on a number of these scenes but uh just you know getting to the start that was that whole departure from your, your flat in London to wheels down in California. That was amazing. Uh, those first few tra uh, days on the trail, 
and wrestling with uh, the issues of, uh, you know, your fears and, and overcoming those and getting kind of normalized to the trail. That, that really stays with me. Um, the final push to the Canadian border, man, it, it, I have yeah. visual, images, visual images in my head of, of that whole thing. And actually, I, we, we led into the podcast with kind of a teaser of, uh, of you in that particular spot. And then the, the flip-flop finish back down to Crater Lake with a couple of your, your countrymen. That was, that was pretty spectacular as well. So congratulations. Yeah. Great I, think that, I think it's fair to say that hike didn't go quite as, as, as I'd expected it. I mean, I wanted a, a pure through hike, as I say, where you start at point A and finish at point B. I had no idea that um, I'd end up flip-flopping or get to Crater getting to no I can't even remember what I did I think I, I flip-flopped yeah I flip-flopped up to at some point in California I can't remember I flipped up to the border with Washington because it was so late right um that if we carried on knocking off California and Oregon we'd get to Washington and I'd be like no it's, it's going to be winter there's going to be snow up there so we flip-flopped to Washington uh, northbounded through Washington flip-flop back to Crater Lake, sorry, not Crater Lake, uh, Bridge of the Gods, and then southbounded to, to Crater Lake to finish it. But yeah, we I finished early November, which is just ludicrous. It's, and I think the last, it was the last two weeks which were snow, so it had, didn't really snow until end of October. So it was a late, I guess a late snow year, but every morning I've got up, unzip the tent and think it, it must have snowed and stuck my head out and there's like no snow. I'm like, okay. So I think I maybe got a little bit blase and but yeah we had a we had a hard two weeks. I've never I've never had a hard hike such as at the end of a piece PCT. That was a a, a f quite an accomplishment. I mean battling with the self-doubt with the low miles and zero miles on some days and taking seven months to, to get through from start to finish, but doing it, finishing. I mean, I have to, I have to think that after you do something like that, that you, you feel like you can do anything. Yeah. But when you, when you, I think when you do do it through, like it goes, it, it goes through a lot of people's mind that, that you, you're capable of a lot more, than you think you're capable of. I mean, when you say to most people, I'm gonna go walk two and a half thousand miles, you, you kind of watch this, this expression of confusion and sort of ripple across their face and you watch their head trying to calculate, is it even possible to walk two and a half thousand miles? The funny thing is, within reason, obviously, that anybody can walk two and a half thousand miles. It's, it's physically demanding, it's psychologically at times an absolute minefield. Your head plays so many games with you, that's the hard part. The physical side tends to take care of itself, it's the head where you've got to sort of be in control of yourself. Um, but yeah, you do get back and you think, I just walked two and a half thousand miles, I can do anything I want to do. And it's, it's a big realisation that you're an awful lot better is not the right word but you're you're capable of a lot more than you think uh, we are capable of a lot more than you think we are so true so true to put to put two and a half thousand miles in perspective for our listeners i i said to my my wife a couple of weeks back i said you know if i you know with my job and you know the time that i'm allowed to to take off and do these kinds of things if i do a hundred miles each summer if i do a hundred miles it'll only take me 26 years to do that 
<laughs> and some people do that as well. I mean, in, in some respects, that's even more uh, amazing than, than doing it in one season. You know, you do 100 miles and it takes you 26 years. That's got to be the definition of, of, of perseverance, you know. You go back and you do your little section, you do it every year for 26 years. That's, that's amazing in itself. Definition of perseverance or insanity? Uh, insanity probably plays a small part as well, yeah. Hey, before we get to our break, I want to touch base just on um, the, the cast of characters that you portrayed in The Last Englishman. Um, so many rich and uh, memorable characters. Wondering if you, if you are able to still keep in touch with any of them. People like uh, your, your compatriots, Nick and Chris, that you finished the trail with, uh, Mojave, Cheeks, Elk. And then I have a, another question for you, because I, I think there's a mix-up in the book. Is it pockets or is it rockets? Uh, it's both. He's, he, was, he got his trail name of pockets on the Appalachian Trail, which he did prior to the AT. Okay. Um, I knew him as pockets at the start, but as, as, as things rolled on, I, I just called him rockets because he walked so quick, like he had a rocket up his ass. Um, can, I, <laughs> can I say that on the podcast? I don't know. Sure, um, you, can, you can say whatever you want. You're fast. Okay. So I just, yeah, I just, I just refer to them as, as rockets, but yeah, I, I stay, I mean, obviously with, um, with Facebook now, I'm, I'm in touch with a lot of the people I did the PCT with, uh, Nick and Chris, uh, who I finished the trail with, uh, live about 40 minutes, a 40 minute drive south of me here in, in England. Um, Chris, I must admit, I don't see as often as I like. Nick, I'd probably see once every two or three months we catch up. Um, Rocket, strangely enough, came to the UK about six months ago. Um, he got a, I think he travels just for the hell of it for a few days somewhere where he's had enough, uh, when he's had enough. And he came to the UK, I think it was October, stayed, stayed here for I think about four or five days, and that was the first time I'd seen him in uh, in ten years. And we just kind of took up from where we left off. Really, the banter was still there, and nice. uh, everything was cool. But yeah, I, I stay stay in touch with, with a lot of them. Some more, some less than I should do, but um, yeah, most of them are, are on Facebook somewhere. So that's great. Lifelong friends, lifelong. Yeah, for sure. For sure, easier and, and easier these days with with social media as well. Like fifteen years ago, it would have been, uh, you know, pen and paper and 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 you write a letter occasionally. Now it's a lot easier than it than it was. A good mm -hmm. thing, I think. Okay, hey, when we come back from the break, we're going to get back to that opening scene with uh, Fozzie, twelve miles from the border, on the side of a mountain, hip deep in snow, running out of food. We're going to find out if he made it, and uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, the, the podcast after that. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. Now, Fozzie, we opened the podcast with you Again, on a, about 12 miles from the Canadian border, you're on the side of a mountain. You're hip deep in snow. It is late in the year, late in the season, so there is a lot of snow, bad weather. You're running out of food. I have to ask, our listeners need to know, did you make it? Did you survive? 
Well, obviously, everybody knows that I am a PCT through hiking, so we obviously made it. But, um, yeah, we, I was hiking with a guy, a fantastic guy from, I think, San Diego called Trooper, who I'm still in touch with. A really fantastic guy. I've been hiking with him, I think, probably for a couple of couple of weeks at the end of the PCT. Um, and we were having a hard time. I mean, we'd hit snow. The winter had finally come, you know, that morning where I unzipped the tent and looked out. It, it had finally snowed and it snowed big time. Um, and we were wading through this stuff every day. Uh, on the last day, I think we had 12 miles to the uh, the northern terminus of the PCT, um, which is, doesn't sound a long distance, and I, I guess it isn't a long distance, but when uh, you're hiking through snow with a howling gale and just the worst conditions you could have. Anyway, we'd, <clears throat> we'd camped at a play, place called uh, Hearts Pass, where there was a small campsite. We got up quite early in the morning, still in the dark. I think it was five o'clock. Uh, just to make as much as uh, make as much of the available light as we could, and a couple of hikers who had given us some food the previous day um, said there was a particularly bad west facing west facing slope which uh, accumulates a lot of snow. Um, I think it's called Lake View, and they said just be just be careful of it. And we saw it on the map, so we knew when we were coming to it. Um, and the snow wasn't particularly bad until that point and we rounded this corner and just looked at what we knew was Lake View and our faces just kind of dropped. I mean, it's not, you know, the final ascent of Everest or the north face of the Eiger or anything like that, but it was basically a, a quite drastic slanting slope, no climbing gear or anything like that. The, the trail would normally be cut into the side and you just walk straight across it, uh, no problem at all. But because it was under snow, the trail had disappeared. And what we actually had was like a diagonal traverse. We couldn't see the, the trail at all, let alone uh, actually tread on the trail. We knew roughly where it was. Um, and we looked at it and we thought, you know, there's no way this is game over six miles from the, from the end of the hike. I've done too much to be like foiled six miles before the finish. And I think our worst fear was because it was early morning, the snow would still be frozen. Um, in normal sort of mountaineering terms, frozen snow is a good thing, because if you're wearing crampons, a lot of people, mountaineers will set out early on in the morning when the snow's still frozen, it's still hard, and they get, they get grip from their, their crampons will go into it, they get good grip. Um, that was our worst nightmare, because we didn't have crampons, or at least that's not strictly true. We had... Um, I can't remember what they're called. They're kind of like rubber things that with the, uh, I can't remember what they're called. They slip over your boots where they got uh, micro spikes on. Micro spikes, the yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had those, but they weren't kind of adequate. So I just had hor hor this horror vision of trying to walk across an angle traverse. And if it was frozen, it would be trying to walk along a sloping mirror. It's just, you just couldn't do it. So our only saving grace was that the snow was soft and we could actually sink into it. And if we could do that, I think we thought we could hit ground underneath and get across. And as it, as it transpired, um, <coughs> the temperatures weren't that low overnight that it hadn't frozen. So it was soft snow. Um, and we managed to get across it. It was a bit scary because we just kept 
looking down to I don't know how far the drop was I think it was maybe 1500 feet but we knew if if we did slide it, it was game over we'd die basically um, but we managed to get across it we I think our feet our legs went in up to about uh, knee depth thigh depth at, at times and we were heading hitting the trail underneath so we had some sort of grip and once we we got through that um, once we got through Lake View, we, it was we knew that was it because we knew it descended to the northern terminus. Um, we could see at the lower elevations that it hadn't snowed down there, so we knew we'd come out of the snow line, and we got over it and we we finished. We did it. Amazing, scary stuff, but uh, you lucked yeah. out. You lucked out with the quality. Yeah, of the we snow. did. Yeah, we did. Very good. Now, as you get to the end of The Last Englishman, uh, you have a, I think it's a, a penultimate chapter called The Original Question, Why? And we kind of referenced that a little bit earlier. You know, why, why do people do this? Why do people put themselves through this ordeal? Why do they go through this suffering and have to uh, embrace the suck as kind of the tagline uh, in the intro to this podcast is? And you had, a, you had a kind of a comprehensive list of reasons why answers to that question of of why do we do this and some of the ones that really stuck out for me as i was cruising through them uh, again uh, you have uh, you have a great list of answers one of them is you know you get to meet some idiots and a couple a couple of uh, answers later on it's you have another one you get to avoid losers so losers and idiots are not synonymous and uh, I, I imagine it's you know happy idiots good people to to hang out with and, and, and get to know. Yeah, that was probably a bit harsh when I wrote it. I don't, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't consider people idiots, but let's face it, there's some people, we, you know, we avoid like the plague, especially on a through hike. But um, yeah, as, as any, any through hiker will tell you, the, the one question that just kind of makes you groan, especially when you get into town and people find out what you're doing is, why are you doing that? And you know it's coming because, you, as, as I mentioned earlier, you can see this look of confusion go across their face when you tell them what they're doing. And once they've kind of got some some sort of understanding, um, you know the question's coming. And at some point they'll say, why? And you, you have a, like two or three stock answers, simple answers that hopefully they won't sort of pursue just like, you know, I enjoy the wilderness or... Uh, it's a dream or it's something I've always wanted to do. But when I got to the end of the book, I thought, <laughs> I need to bury this question once and for all. I need people to read this book and realise that if they ever see a thru-hiker, the one question they should not ask them is, why are you thru-hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail or the Camino mm -hmm. de Santiago? So I just kind of sat down and I thought, write down all the reasons you could possibly think of of why you're thru-hiking. And I listed them all uh, in the back of the book, um, I've got it in front of me here. Actually, I, obviously, I can't remember these from uh, memory, but let's just just have a few. Uh... Yeah, you had you had some good ones. Ones the ones that I wrote down here are uh, you know sit in a public place, having not washed for nine days, and observe other people's reactions. That is a good reason. Yeah, and a, and a very true one. I think my personal favourite was um, uh, get to where. Um, is it a kilt? Do you call them a kilt over there? Is it kilt? Yeah, hiking kilt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so one of them was, uh, you, you get to wear a kilt. I mean, let's face it, we don't normally walk around town in a kilt, but on, on the through like it's perfectly acceptable and normal. And at that point, I don't think anybody really gives a shit anyway. But um, <laughs> so, we, you know, one of them was you get to wear a kilt. I think another one is you get to wear tights is the wrong word, but kind of um, nylon leg warmers when it's cold. They look like black tights. So that was another one. You get to wear tights. And I think the one after that was get to wear kilts and a tight and tights at the same time. Ideal. Um, yes. What else, what else did we have in here? Uh, I like to have others appreciate and accept you for who you are. Yeah. And also be as free as you could ever hope for. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a favorite. How about uh, cook a filling meal for $1? Mm-hmm. A lot of people actually consider that expensive on a few hike, through hike. Uh, learn perseverance, learn stubbornness, learn how to never give up. Yeah. Implore others to never give up. So I've got one that uh, was not on your list, but I've got one that kind of resonates with quite a few of those. And that is that the trail connects us both metaphorically and literally. And I'm explaining a little bit. When I read your book and when I watched documentaries about the trail, I feel that connection of having my feet having put my feet on the same trail as Fozzie did. Um, and though it was separated by years, there's still that connection uh, between those that have come before and that are coming after. And, you know, John Muir died before his trail was built, but he wandered in those same areas that we did. And it's just uh, awesome and, and unifying to, to, to realize that. This is, um, I'm just writing down a name actually before I forget it, but I, I had that experience on the, um, the Appalachian Trail and I, I wrote about it in, in, in the AT memoir. But yeah, you do think about people that have walked the trail before you, like John Muir, for example. Um, I, when I was walking the AT, a lot of people, because I did the Appalachian Trail second, I did the Pacific Crest Trail first. A lot of people I met on the Pacific Crest Trail uh, had already walked the Appalachian Trail because generally people walk the Appalachian Trail before uh, the PCT. So they sort of give me stories about the Appalachian Trail. So at certain points, you know, you, you maybe you get to a town or you get to a certain shelter or you get to a river crossing and you're like, oh, damn, dinosaurs told me about this place or pockets told me about that little abandoned homestead, that sort of thing. But I'd also written... Uh, sorry, read as as a lot of people I think do through hiking men uh, through hiking memoirs if they're doing a through hike. So I, I read memoirs before I did uh, my through hikes to find out about it and, and and get a feel for what actually goes on. And the two authors for me um, on the Appalachian Trail were uh, David Miller and David um, Brill. Uh, David Miller wrote uh, Abel on the Appalachian Trail. Um, I think that was the first one I wrote. And David Brill wrote probably my favourite um, through hiking memoir, which is as far as the eye can see, which strangely enough, I don't see appearing on people's lists very often. I don't know why it's not a lot more popular than it is, because for me, that was that was one of the best books I've, I've, I've read, on, not just on the Appalachian Trail, but uh, through hiking in general. But yeah, I, I thought about those two when I was on the Appalachian Trail as well and what they'd, what they'd experienced. And 
it kind of comes full circle, you know. Now I've written my book and I think, hey, is someone reading my book to find out what it's like for their through hike next year? And are they going to get to a certain point which I wrote about and they'll get there and say, hey, this is the, this is the place Fozzie wrote about. And mm-hmm. that sort of, so it's, it's kind of interesting that I, I read other people's books. I hiked the trail. I wrote a book about it, which now people are reading, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, to do their through hike. So it's kind of almost like a, a, continuing, a continuing theme, a continuing pattern almost. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote down uh, as far as the eye can see because that's going to be my second book that I read after I read High and Low. Uh, I love that book. Check I love that, that out. book. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Fozzie, here we are. We're at that point in the pod where we talk about the pro tip insight of the week. What can we share with our listeners out there that will help them learn from our experiences? Uh, the simple answer to this question is. Um, well, we call them elastic bands. I don't know if you call them, do you call them elastic bands in the States? Rubber bands? Rubber bands. Yeah. <clears throat> Rubber bands. We call them elastic bands. Uh, this, is, this is pro tip insight of the week for me is elastic bands. Um, and when people sort of do ask me, what should I be taking on a through hike? And I say elastic bands and you get this weird kind of look because you, you're expected to say a certain tent or trekking poles or these trail shoes or um, gas cartridges or stove fuel or whatever. But for me, it's elastic bands. Um, I think when I did the Camino, I got about two weeks in and I'm like, I mean, I never packed rubber bands, elastic bands, whatever you call them, because I didn't think I'd need elastic bands or rubber bands. But I think on the second day, I bought a packet of rice and I put a little bit of rice in my, in my pan and started boiling it. And I looked at the packet of the rice and I thought, how the hell am I going to seal that bag of rice? I, I should have bought elastic bands. So I think the next town I got to, I did buy elastic bands and I never sort of threw hike without them now. I mean, they're great for sealing food bags, obviously. I think I've used them to replace a broken lace in the past. They're perfect for those little... You know, there's little elastic hoops you get on the corners of tents where you sort of put your stakes through and you pull the tent out and they're elasticated. Yes. I don't have mm-hmm. the correct terminology for them, but uh, I've replaced... The tie-out tie point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've replaced those with elastic bands. You can compress bags inside your, your main rucksack down. So, I don't know, let's say you've got a, <clears throat> you've got a down jacket, it goes in this little bag and you can squeeze it super down, you can sit on it, but as soon as you get off it, it just puffs back up again. Put elastic bands around it, it stays, uh, it stays compressed. They weigh nothing. I mean, I don't even think if you put a, a rubber band on a set of scales, it would even register, would it? I might have to try that, getting a bit nerdy. <laughs> How heavy is an elastic band? How many elastic bands can you carry and not notice? Exactly. Or how many elastic bands can you get on a scale before it registers? Mm -hmm. So that's my pro tip of the week. Um, Do not leave for a through hike without rubber bands or elastic bands if you're English. Solid advice. I propose two others. Uh, One is that when you encounter that that, uh, voice in your head, that internal narrator that says it's not gone well, push that aside and keep going because 
as you said, Fazi, we are we are more capable than we think we are. We are. Um, on that thought, sometimes you do have to listen to it. There's, you know, <laughs> every year people do get off trail. They they push it to the point where they shouldn't have done so. Let's just point out that we should sometimes, but I would say ninety nine nine percent of the time just ignore it and and tell it to go away. Yeah, good point. And my last one that I'll leave us with is. If you hear a, a ghostly screaming woman outside your tent in the middle of the night on the trail, stay very, very quiet. Yeah, and if it's between the uh, Peter Grubb shelter and Sierra City, let me know about it so I know I'm not going mad and there is someone actually out there in the woods screaming at hikers. Nice. So there you have it. That's it. Episode 21 is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Fozzie, and I want to thank him so much for joining this joining us this week. I think uh, this was a fantastic episode. Any, uh, any comments, Fozzie? Um, well, thanks for asking me. Um, I think it's been a ball. I've really enjoyed it. Um, there is something I did, I did want to say. I think we touched upon it earlier and it's, um, it's quite, it's, it's, I think it's quite an important one in going back to this, this, this trace chasing your, your dreams. If, if you're, regardless of what age you are if you think for me you know when i when i was 17 years old and i was i was i was getting pushed on towards the, the, these career paths and, and what i should be doing with my life a lot of people will, will listen to that and you should listen to it and you should take it on board and if indeed you agree with it and you think that's an exciting career go and do it but if there's a little voice in the back of your head that says no, I don't really want to go and be a mechanical engineer. I don't want to be a computer programmer. I don't care if it pays $80,000 a year. It's not going to make me happy. And if that little voice says, hey, have you thought about um, going doing a through hike or maybe going backpacking for 3,000 miles or sailing around the yacht, uh, sailing around the world on a yacht, just kind of pause and listen to it. And if, if, if you think it excites you, then chase it, go and do it. Don't end up in a career that you, you shouldn't have ended up in doing something you hate because it's, it there's, there's more to life than that. Yeah. So important to pay attention to those moments where, where life reaches out to you. Take advantage. It's not all about how much you, it's not all about how much you get paid. Very good. Oh, damn, I nearly forgot. I need to do a shout-out, don't I? Um, well, we're going we're gonna to come to that in just a second. We're going to come to oh, that in okay. a second. So okay. remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakingmirror at gmail.com. Uh, that's a wrap from the John Freaking Mirror studio. Any final thoughts, Fozzie? Here you go. Yeah, I need to do a shout out. Um, apparently, there's some geezer called Jukebox, uh, Jukebox rather, a guy called Chopper, Buddy, Big E, Slow Mo, BA, Rob, and Dr. Bob. You guys are doing a fantastic job. Awesome. And I think you also had uh, a giveaway that we had discussed. Damn, we nearly forgot the giveaway. Yeah, yeah we, we do. can't forget that. We can't. Um, okay, so we've got. You might have to help me out with this, but I've got 10 ebook copies. So uh, 10 ebook copies of The Last Englishman and also a signed 
paperback copy of The, the Last Englishman um, to give away freebies. Uh, obviously, the 10 ebooks I'll get emailed and the paperback I'll sign and, and send over the Atlantic, assuming someone in America wins it. Um, you're going to have to tell everybody. Uh, okay. Hey, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take it from here. That's the giveaway. Okay. That's some good okay. merchandise right there. Uh, I have been after our listeners to give us some reviews and some ratings. And so this is a prime opportunity for me to leverage that. So the first 11 listeners on the John freaking your pod to give me, give me, uh, give the podcast a review. Those first 11 will, will have uh, those gifts sent out. And what we'll do for the, the autographed paperback copy is we'll, we will take the first 11 and I'll do a random draw uh, to determine who gets that. So, uh, as soon as you're done listening to this episode, log on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, and we'll take the first 11 to, to hand out that merchandise. Thank you so much, Fozzie. I really appreciate that. No problem. Let me know who's won, and I'll obviously get that sorted out uh, Sorted out this end. All right. Very good. Thank you for tuning in, and always remember, the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't care if you're on a slant in hip deep snow. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck.